Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's go down to Brazil. Let's talk about the Brazilian and the South American Airlines business. To do that, we welcome Richard Lark. Richard's the CFO of Goal Airlines. It's the largest airline within Brazil uh, in terms of market share. Richard, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. First of all, just give us a sense of kind of what Goal Airlines is, how big you are, kind of what your market is, and, and, and how the business is, is trending. We're the largest uh, domestic in Brazil, about 750 flights a day to over 100 destinations. About 85% of our business is within domestic Brazil, and about 15% are destinations to the majority of South American countries and uh, the state of Florida. All right. So when I think about uh, South America right now, I think about what's going on in Chile, which is disrupting the economy dramatically. Uh, Argentina, uh, which potentially is on the brink of default. Uh, we've seen some issues in uh, in Bolivia and in other regions. How much is that affecting your business? Yeah, we, we have a, about half of our international revenues are ONDs between Brazil and Argentina. Um, that was doing very well until about a year ago. That has suffered a lot uh, because of what's been going on economically and the reduction in purchasing power with the Argentines. We have a small portion of our business in Chile, and we, we've also seen uh, disruptions there, primarily because of the protests, uh, not because of economic, but because of the protests and people being um, afraid of uh, getting stuck in airports. And we've seen that also affect uh, other airlines in Chile. So within Brazil, just give us a sense of how the Brazilian uh, airline business differs from that in the US. Well, uh, the, the, I would say a couple of points structurally. Uh, generally, it's a shorter haul flight. Our, our average flight in Brazil is about an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, about 65% of our consumers are uh, traveling for business purposes. Uh, so they tend to be a more price and elastic customer. Um, so we're about you know 65% business, 35% leisure. The US is the opposite of that. Uh, we're in the US, you have much more price sensitive passenger. And what that means is that in Brazil, the customer is much more demanding in terms of the product. And, you know, for example, at Goal, uh, from 2013 to 2018, over that five-year period, we invested around $250 million in um, what today is the most attractive product for uh, the business customer, uh, which goes from everything to the network, uh, the punctuality, as well as the customer experience. You know, we're the only company in Brazil that has... Uh, onboard uh, Wi-Fi in all of our aircraft. And so what that means, I think, versus the U.S., the Brazilian customer is much more demanding uh, in terms of uh, the product uh, than you might uh, find in the U.S. You know, Paul, it just occurred to me that they could make, uh, you know, business in the front, party in the back actually yes. mean something <laughs> different. Anyway, I digress. Um, moving right along, uh, the shares of Goal up more than 19% year to date. Uh, back at the end of last year, you completed an 18-month restructuring and had to recreate the business going forward. And I'm just wondering, generally, at a time when the consumer is strong, what's been your pitch uh, to sort of uh, get business back up and running? What's the key to success, given the competitive environment in airlines right now? Well, on the consumer side, uh, it's been... Um for us in, in Brazil, especially given the economic contraction that happened in 15, 16, uh, being able to offer to the business customer the best product in the market. Uh, right now, we're starting to shift our focus a bit uh, to the non-business, to the leisure side, uh, which is much more uh, fair sensitive. Uh, but the, the key to our success over this uh, last part of the cycle 
um, which has been uh, a down part of the cycle, has been our, our focus on the business customer. What's your, one of the things we talk about the airlines, one of the big issues that we talk about is, is just kind of the Boeing, the 737 MAX. What's your exposure there and how are you kind of dealing with kind of the grounding of this aircraft? Yeah, right. It's, uh, we, when the MAX was grounded, we had uh, seven aircraft that were immediately grounded. Uh, this year, we would have had delivery of uh, another 24 this year. Uh, so in, as of the fourth quarter this year, it started to have uh, a more significant impact on our business uh, financially, uh, which is baked into our numbers. But we are, we are in discussions uh, with Boeing on what kind of compensation we're going to receive. We're going to receive from that. Uh, but our ability this year to deliver on our guidance, in spite of what's been happening, the Max has been a result of you know the leadership of our CEO Kakinoff, combined with our uh, high flexibility on the fleet management side, which has allowed us to resource aircraft to cover our fleet needs. Uh, with the problems we've had this year, we effectively had to intra-year resource an additional 40 aircraft uh, inside of You're our- talking about the MAX jet, right? MAX and also the uh, pickle fork issue uh, that affected some of the older versions of the NGs. And uh, we had to be extremely flexible and effectively resource about one-third of our fleet needs intra-year. Yeah. Just quickly here, uh, since the restructuring, you are rated in the B credit tier uh, by the credit rating companies. I'm wondering, going forward, you've said you want to restore the double B rating. When do you think you can do that and how? Second quarter of next year is our target. Uh, we plan in the second quarter of next year to amortize around another $400 million of debt, uh, of gross debt, uh, which should be enough to uh, push us back above uh, into the double B category. But does it take away from your ability to spend elsewhere that you need to? No, or? we've already got that cash reserved on the balance sheet. Uh, this year, uh, we topped it up with, with a very successful convertible bond offering. So we already got about a billion dollars of liquidity on the balance sheet. Uh, we use about 40% of that to uh, uh, to uh, amortize this debt in the second quarter of next year. How many times have you been to Carnival? Um, none in the last 10 years, but in my earlier days, too many times to remember. <laughs> Richard Lark, thank you so much for being with us. Richard Lark, uh, Chief Financial Officer for Gol Linas uh, Eras. Am I pronouncing it right? Absolutely not. Gol Airlines. Goal. Okay, Gol Airlines. Goal. That's why I Gol Planes. Yeah. <laughs> that I can do. Uh, I will say, I actually uh, lived in, uh, in Chile right. back, uh, you know, a while back. And, uh, you know, I went to Brazil and... Portuguese, when you read it, it looks very similar. Right. In but, practice, but access, no. forget it. <laughs> anyway, it was, it was, it was a very uh, enjoyable trip. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, we've talked a lot about the softening in values in certain coastal cities in the real estate market, both on the commercial side as well as the residential side, to parse through what we're seeing and what we can expect going forward. We're so glad uh, to have with us here Andrea Olshin. She's Chief Executive Officer of Olshin Properties. Uh, she's joining us from Burden's 2019 Real Estate Industry Executive Forum. Andrea, can you give us a sense right now as you look at the national landscape are you more worried about the coastal cities right now or some of the uh, secondary and tertiary cities that a lot of people are, are going to to invest? I definitely am worrying about uh, the secondary and tertiary cities much more than the coast. I think the coasts have really good fundamentals in terms of people moving in, uh, in terms of job growth, in terms of 
um, business growth and business development, I think where you're seeing um, a lot of distress is in the secondary and tertiary markets where it's, um, it's very hard to get labor. Um, the rates are very high. Uh, there's a lot of oversupply in the retail market, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of fundamental job growth to help either take the, the burden off of uh, the wage rates uh, for hiring or to um, really spur any sort of business development that would help fill, whether it's repositioning of vacant retail, uh, fill um, office, B&C office um, in the suburbs, uh, and even B&C garden style. What's interesting, we had a lot of uh, retail companies uh, report earnings today and some, some weak earnings, and we've seen become, grown accustomed to in that retail segment as Amazon takes over uh, the retail uh, business. Give us a sense of that part of the market, uh, that commercial retail space. Are, are malls just going out of business? If so, what do you do with the space? And is there any way to make money in that side of the business? Yeah, I think, listen, I think the good malls are really good, and I think people do want... Uh, to be in brick and mortar, and you're seeing a lot of clicks to bricks retailers. Um, Warby Parker being the most obvious, but you see it with Casper or Jenny Kane um, or different retailers, and and both high end and and throughout the spectrum uh, mid market. And these retailers are very sophisticated. They have data. So it used to be that when you leased a space, it was all based on a retailer's projections, and you're you're arguing the demographics of the neighborhood, and they're arguing their projections. And the truth is, it was really a crystal ball or a wet finger. In the Air. And now, because they sell so much online and it's so omnichannel, they really understand where they want to be, and they already know they're going to do well somewhere when they get there. Um, so I think for those locations, they have a high degree of conviction, um, and you, you're able to to sign leases. It's in all the other places that are more marginal or where distribution networks make it such that it's not worth it to rent a space and commit to the staffing and the training and the build out and all of that, where uh, you see retailers say, you know, one one store in this market is enough. So I always give the example of Dayton used to be a three-store market for the Gap, and each Gap store was 10,000 square feet. Well, now there's no reason to have a three-store market, and they did. They closed two out of the three. So they have one market, they have one store in the market. It's not paying very much rent, but you don't need to have three stores for people to know what a Gap item is, and they're able to shop online, and if they want to go in store, they can. Where are we in the housing market cycle? That's a really good question. I think that um, I think we are we've already hit peak and we're starting the decline. I think there's a real fundamental shift to long-term rental. And I think that that's where it used to be that as the market picked up, rental was always seen as transitional. And I actually see rental now as more long-term stable. And you're seeing a lot of people do single-family rentals. So what does that mean in terms of how much values are going to depreciate? I don't know that they are. I, I What I'm hoping and and is that it actually slows the the development of more for sale housing. And I think that in New York, we're seeing really an oversupply problem in terms of softening prices. Um, And has that worked itself through yet or not yet? Not even close. And I think the low interest rates are part of the problem. So you have developers who have extremely low interest rate loans and they're able to sit on product and still service their debt. So they're waiting for price 
because either their investment structure demands it um, or they just want to come out of the deal. And so they're willing to hold on um, while interest rates remain low. And so it hasn't really forced that to, to flush out yet. On a commercial side, is there capital available for development? Are the banks still looking favorably on commercial real estate? Yeah, I think there's capital in every piece of the of the uh, cap stack. There's a ton of private equity money. I think that's a, one of the big reasons why what we're seeing is a, is this continued divergence between fundamentals and pricing because there's just so much cash chasing deals with low interest rates, and they're willing to just take the scrape. Um, there's banks are still lending. Um, maybe they're not going as high in the cap stack, but that's okay because there are tons of MES funds and preferred equity funds, and we're even playing more in the preferred equity field um, than we are in the equity because I'd rather be uh, in a more secure place in the cap stack and be getting better returns. So you said that we're not even close to working through the supply glut that you're seeing in New York City, for example, and yet you're still more worried about the secondary and tertiary cities where places like Goldman Sachs, uh, their merchant bank is seeing opportunities. Can you square those ideas? Yeah. No, I think, listen, I think there are one or two areas that people are investing in, which are sort of the the good suburbs, if you will, which have some good fundamentals. You're seeing, you know, whether it's Memphis or Nashville or, right, some of these Atlanta, you're seeing investment. You're not seeing this in, you know, Spokane or um, in Glendive, Montana, right? You're not seeing these these cities where it's across the board. Um, and they're, they're building, you know, multifamily or investing in multifamily because of, of what I spoke about with the rental fundamentals. The super high-end condos that were built assuming that tons of Chinese capital or other foreign capital was going to come in and buy them at any price to park cash, I think those are those are challenged because they, they weren't needed. Um, and so I, I think that's where we're going to see some softening. And the truth is, should condos be $3,500 a foot? Should should it look like a deal when it's $1,200 a foot to buy to buy an apartment? I, I don't think so, right? I mean, I think I think we the pricing has gotten so out of control. Will it sell at a price? Like this is what we're talking about about New York and and why New York is so robust. In New York, it'll sell or it'll rent at a price because there's constant demand. Whereas in other places, you're just trying to beg people to move from one garden style unit to another garden style unit. And all you can compete on is concessions and pricing, but you're not going to get them for more than a year. Andrea, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming in to share your thoughts. Andrea Olshan, CEO of Olshan Properties. Uh, She's uh, appearing today uh, at the Burdens 2019 Real Estate uh, Industry Executive Forum being held here at Bloomberg's HQ uh, in New York. Right now, we want to turn to real estate. Jennifer McLean joining us here, uh, Chief Financial Officer for Kushner Companies, focusing uh, mostly on multifamily uh, properties, correct? Yes. All right. So we just heard that there does seem to be a glut of the high-end condos in coastal cities. We know this. This has been going on for a while, and that pain could deepen. So a lot of people have changed their sites to the secondary cities. Do you also see that as the place to be? Uh, yes, in fact, um, we've 
concentrated a lot of our acquisition uh, efforts uh, outside of New York. Uh, we've expanded this past year into other markets, including Maryland, uh, Virginia, and Florida. We just see the opportunity there with some of those garden-style um, apartments. Are you doing developing new properties or buying existing properties? We're we're looking obviously on the acquisition side every opportunity we can get, but uh, the challenge is supply. There's not a lot of supply there. There's a lot of money chasing deals, uh, so our uh, development efforts have ramped up here the last year. We're we're going to be developing close to six thousand units probably over the next twenty four months. So how do you gauge whether there is a ripe opportunity given the fact that those areas? tend to get hit if there is a big employer that pulls out. Right. I mean, we and nothing's uh you know, nothing's ever sure, uh, but we, we do a lot of due diligence up front uh, in terms of, uh, you know, studying the geographics of the area. A lot of work goes into the analytics in terms of analyzing the deals up front. Um, you know, we historically have have focused on specific yields within different markets. We're a little bit lighter now on our yields just because there isn't the product there. Um, what does that mean? Uh, the yields, your return on your your returns on so your in investment. In other words, the, the return on investment is coming down a bit just because slightly, of, uh, yes. just the rents coming down and softening in certain um, areas. No, not the rents. It's just the opportunities uh, and the supply isn't there, so it's driving pricing up in the market. I see. So give us a sense of competition. You mentioned it is getting competitive on the acquisition front. Who do you, who do you find you typically run into on, in, in terms of competition? Yeah, well, we're, um, we're looking at the larger deals now. Um, the most recent acquisition was a little over a billion dollars, um, about 6,000 units. So, you know, we're kind of in that uh, area um, right now. So there's a, there's a handful of individuals that we compete with that similar size. How about private equity? Because I see the Blackstones of the world raising yeah. money left and right in these huge real estate funds. Do they come and play in your space? Yes, definitely. There's a lot of private equity uh, funds available right now. So that definitely is competition in terms of, of, of our ability to get product. How, uh, how much lower do you think returns will go? I mean, just given the fact that how much more can you turbo boost this cycle? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we've got a threshold, obviously. Um, I've seen the cash on cash returns drop a little bit, but we're not, we're still smart investors. You know, we're not going to invest in something that's uh, a high level of risk or that we're not guaranteed a, a minimum return on that investment. How do you typically ideally like to structure your deals from a capital perspective, debt versus your equity versus maybe some preferred equity and so on? Yeah. So obviously we take equity, we've got skin in the game, every single deal, um, you know, with the interest rates, uh, you know, the borrowing is very attractive right now. Um, so we, we've structured our capital stack a couple different ways over the last 18 months. We've got MESDAT, we've got preferred equity. Uh, most of our recent deals, there's a preferred equity piece. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Jennifer McLean uh, is the Chief Financial Officer of Kushner Companies, uh, joining us here from the 2019 Burden Real Estate Industry uh, Executive Forum, which is being held here at Bloomberg headquarters. Thank you so much for being with us. We are talking real estate. It is the Burdens 2019 Real Estate Industry Executive Forum. We're joined now by Richard Rubin, CEO of Rubin Companies. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
tell us where you. you guys play in the greater real estate uh, investment asset class. Right. Uh, so traditionally, we have uh, been office developers on the East Coast in New York, Boston, and Washington. Uh, lately, we've been downsizing a little on our office assets, and we've been focusing on multifamily development. I'm uh, primarily in Washington and a little bit of Miami, but 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 we focus mostly on the East Coast. Why are you downsizing? Uh, good good question. Um, a lot of our office properties are what we call our legacy assets, built in the '60s and '70s. They're very capital intensive, so they require a lot of capital to to upgrade them to be to uh, be modern modern contemporary office space. Like you see tenants like Facebook moving to new buildings and BlackRock and moving to Hudson Yards. Very expensive to upgrade these buildings to be modern office space. And uh, after you've owned them for um, you know, 30, 40 years, it was time to put it, let someone else put in that capital and take on the task of upgrading them. So what's the, the area of the market that you guys think is most attractive right now? Uh, well, right right now we're not really pursuing equity investments as much as we are trying to move up up a little uh, in seniority in the in the capital stack, uh, doing preferred equity and and mezzanine investing. Prices are prices have come down a little from their peak. I think they I think asset prices peaked probably two or three years ago, um, but they're still pretty high because interest rates are low and there's uh, tons of capital that want to come here and take advantage of the interest rate spreads between U.S. interest rates and, say, European and yep. Asian interest rates, and also take care, take advantage of the political safety of having their capital here. So between the flood of, of capital and low interest rates, it's still a very hard time to find uh, good equity investments in the U.S. When you say that prices have come down a little bit, I'm also thinking about uh, actually commercial real estate rents in places like Boston recently coming down, uh, or, or at least uh, d demand coming down uh, for leasing properties, things that are starting to cool in a material way. And I'm wondering how far along in that are we? Uh, yeah, I'd say it's much more it's much more of a supply issue in most of these markets than it is a demand issue. Uh, there's there is demand in in um, in uh, in Boston and New York, there's plenty of demand, but there's also a ton of supply. There's a lot, as I said, a lot of new building at Hudson Yards, and Brookfield, just to the east of Hudson Yards, uh, renovation of existing uh, uh, of inventory up and down Sixth Avenue and Third Avenue. There's a lot of supply, and that's affecting the market. Also, in multifamily, up and down the East Coast, uh, with the possible exception of rental properties in New York, but in in Boston and Philadelphia and Washington and Miami. Plenty of supply of 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 new uh, new multifamily properties, how much and that's having an impact on the market. How much of your activity now is actually developing properties versus simply investing in existing properties and existing capital structures? Right, I, I, the re the returns are still much better in in development. In development, you can st you can still. Uh, develop a property. It's it's much riskier. It's much more time consuming. You got to pay really close attention. Lots of things can go wrong, but uh, but the returns are greater than uh, in buying existing existing properties. So, what's your highest conviction? I don't want to say trade right now, but investment right now. Uh, highest conviction, uh, highest conviction investment. I would say would be uh, preferred equity or mezzanine on develop on multifamily development deals. Where? Uh, well, we know the East Coast, so I would say up and down the East Coast. Although we've been looking uh, in other other parts of the country uh, as well. So, yeah, so how do you think about that? Because uh, obviously the East Coast um, has a certain economic uh, vibe to it. Very different, I would guess, if you go you know away from the coast. But probably better value there, maybe. How do you kind of weigh those two things? You know what? Because uh, because I grew up in New York, and because I'm basically an East Coast <laughs> person, I we tend to look at things in other parts of the country that feel like the East Coast. 
for example, we invest in something like, like in Cleveland. So between a university and a medical clinic, it's not just anywhere. Cleveland, it, it feels like uh, you, you sort of get a little New York energy out of it. Um, so uh, that's just, that's just that uh, you know you, you you tend to invest in what you're familiar with when you know, and that feels familiar. All right. So the bagels don't even compare, but Florida no, is that's, that's a bad in bagel. Florida. I'm oh, talking Florida, about Florida because okay. the water just doesn't work with the bagels. No, that's They're true. terrible. But um, I, I do want to just get your sense if Florida's starting to look a little more like New York, given uh, sort of the salt taxes and the migration. You, you know, there has been migration down. I would say the the impact of that migration is not really felt in the except in a very, very small part of the, of, of the market so far. The big effect on Florida has been flight capital from Latin America, a um, big effect in the residential market. And that's what has stopped completely now, and that's why the uh, for sale market in, in Miami is a little weaker than it's been. Richard Rubin, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, thank you. Richard Rubin is Chief Executive Officer of the Rubin Companies, uh, joining us from Burden's 2019 Real Estate Industry Executive Forum. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.